Welcome to the podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Area Church at First Parish in Sherborne. No matter who you are, who you love, we welcome you into our community of religious seekers. Please join us for our Sunday worship services each week at 10.30 a.m. More information can be found on our website at uuac.org or visit our Facebook page at Sherborne Unitarian Universalist. Enjoy the sermon. This morning we invite you to participate in a litany. For each statement we share with you, we ask that you respond with the words, we hold our history, we don't look away. If you're at home online, we hope you'll speak the words out loud. If you're here in the sanctuary, we hope you'll say out loud, we hold our history, we don't look away. Let us begin. This morning we remember the land where our beloved sanctuary stands is the ancestral and unceded land of the Nipmunk, the Massachusetts, the Ponkapaw, and the Praying Indians of Natick. People who have walked these hills for hundreds of years and more and who remain an integral part of our community. This morning we lift up the memory of the enslaved Americans who worked this land without choice or reward and whose descendants are with us today. We hold our history, we don't look away. According to the 1619 Project, enslavement is not marginal to the history of the United States, it is inextricable. So many of our traditions and institutions were shaped by slavery. And so many of our persistent racial inequalities stem from its enduring legacy. We hold our history. We don't look away. This morning we remember all those who are central to the history of this land, but who have been marginalized in the telling of that history and are often denied the gifts this nation has to offer. We hold our history. We don't look away. Remember the Chinese Americans who built the Transcontinental Railway, completing it in 1869, only to witness the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, in which Congress banned Chinese immigration to the United States. We hold our history, we don't We remember the 127,000 Japanese Americans residing in the western United States who were forced into internment camps during the Second World War for no reason other than their heritage. We hold our history, we don't look away. We remember that the concept of manifest destiny led to the conquest of Mexican lands that we now know as Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, and Utah. We are courageous enough to acknowledge that President William Taft, a member of All Souls United, 
Washington, D.C., declared, the whole hemisphere will be ours, in fact, as by virtue of our superiority of race, it is already is ours morally. We told our history. We remember that our nation is built upon systems of education, law, medicine, and finance that favor the descendants of the conquerors and colonizers and puts obstacles before the descendants of those that they oppressed and enslaved. We hold our history. We don't look away. This morning, even as we hold the truth of our history, we remember that it is only we who can change its course. We remember that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, if we make it so. And so this morning, we remember all those who have fought for what is right and all those who fight alongside us today. We hold our history. We don't look away. This morning, we remember that this is the country of Susan B. Anthony, Martin Luther King Jr., Eleanor Roosevelt, Renee Richards, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Cesar Chavez, Henry David Thoreau, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Miles Davis. We hold our history. We don't look away. We remember that we reside in a nation that gave us Rachel Carson, Jackie Robinson, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Maria Tulchi, Gloria Steinem, Sacagawea, Sandy Koufax, Thurgood Marshall, Maya Angelou, Margaret Fuller, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Barack Obama, Sonia Sotomayor, and Jim Henson. We hold our history, we don't look away. We lift up with gratitude the lives and lessons of Harvey Milk, Rita Moreno, Edward R. Murrow, Mary Oliver, Chief Joseph, Audre Lorde, Sandra Day O'Connor, Red Cloud, Harry Hay, Tammy Baldwin, Angela Davis, Joy Layden, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Carter, Langston Hughes, Anita Hill, and William Barber. We hold our history. We don't look away. This morning we lift up in honor and celebration all those living and ancestors who have given their lives to the work of justice, of love, of resistance to evil, of liberation. Those truth tellers and prophets, visionaries and dreamers, leaders and teachers. May we learn from their example and be so inspired to act in service of love and justice. We hold our history. We don't look away. So this afternoon, right after worship, our congregation will be voting on the eighth principle. And if this morning is your first time with us in worship, the eighth principle is in addition to the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism. And this eighth principle will be a promise and a commitment to, as a community, work to dismantle racism and other oppressions, to work toward building multicultural beloved community, and to understand the ways in which this work is part of our own journey towards spiritual wholeness. And if you've been in worship with us over the past several months, you have heard a lot about what this might mean for our community to choose this, to say yes to this eighth principle. And today is the vote. 
Today, after all of the work and conversation we've done thus far, we will be asking ourselves, do we commit and promise to try to live into this eighth principle together as a community? Many of us yesterday were at the Visions of Justice workshop with Paula Cole Jones, who is one of the co-authors of the eighth principle. And she said in yesterday's workshop that racial justice is the work of a community, not the work of committees. And this vote is not the end. This vote is our commitment, it's a beginning, that as a whole community, we are choosing this work. We are choosing to do this work in community and not in committee. And so in worship this morning, we are asking, what comes next? What comes after today? What does anti-racism look like here in Metro West Boston? What is the work for UUAC to do? How can each of us, as part of our individual commitments to the Eighth Principle and a communal commitment, bring this work into our lives? So this morning you will hear from three members of our community, Don Greenstein, Barb Warby, and Katie Frasinelli, about how they are living out this commitment in their communities, their parenting, their work lives. Don, Barb, and Katie have all found ways to embody their commitment to justice work starting right where they are, reminding us that we don't need to radically change our lives to begin to do this work, but we might find that this work changes us. So Don, Barb, and Katie, thank you. We are so grateful to you for sharing your stories with us. Don? Good morning. I'm Don Greenstein member of this church since 2010. I gave up the practice of law in 2000 and took my application for being a peacemaker and a mediator. I was trained in 1989 as a restorative justice mediator. I volunteered in the Washington DC inner city community helping victims and offenders overcome alleged criminal events in the DC community. DC government desired not to prosecute these individuals and some of these situations were referred to a community mediation program in which I volunteer. With the crisis in our world today, I find my training and work to be an important life skill. In 2018, I joined the local community freedom team. The freedom team, which was started by our friend Jamil Adams in 2016, is a group of community members who facilitate difficult conversations. There are seven freedom teams in this area including one led by our own Kathleen Dinsmore in Hopkinton. This work helps participants learn from incidents, preserve relationships, and overcome differences through deeper communication in the community. To give you one example, a situation arose in a local store. A white customer became frustrated after waiting in line for a long period of time and made a racist comment towards a black customer in front of them. The store manager contacted the police who met with the victim and the actor separately. The victim shared that they did not want to press any charges individually against this person. They wanted the actor to know the impact that this situation had upon them. The police, who were aware of the Freedom Team, offered the actor an opportunity to talk to the victim and store manager in a restorative justice circle or to go through a traditional judicial process. The actor asked for the facilitated conversation which would avoid potential court hearing and litigation that could impact their work and their family life. 
The Freedom Team received the referral and was asked to meet with those involved. Three team members facilitated a conversation which involved the customer, the store manager, and the actor. The black customers shared information about growing up in the area, attending public schools where they were regularly bullied, and students who made comments like what was yelled at them by the actor on a regular basis. The store manager explained that they would not tolerate any racist comments in their store as everyone is welcome and must be treated with dignity and respect. The actor was asked to paraphrase what they heard from these two participants. They started out by sharing that they were exhausted after a day of working as a labor contractor and they just wanted to make their purchase and get home. They felt the customer was moving way too slow to make their purchase in the checkout line. The actor next shared that they heard the manager say that they had to treat everyone with respect and they shared that they grew up with students who had bullied them in high school and they'd been called names. The manager and the customer were asked to paraphrase what they had heard the actor share. So what is the restorative justice process? It's about relationships at the heart of the circle of discussion in a restorative justice. It's to rebuild the relationship. It's about respect. If relationships are at the heart of restorative justice, then respect is the key ingredient which can make it happen. It's about responsibility. Restorative justice, to be effective, everyone must grapple with their own personal responsibility. It's about repairing relationships and reintegration, getting past the harm and work so everyone can re-engage in their community. What is a restorative justice circle? These circles were born out of the indigenous, pre-colonized societies around the world. Circles tap into communal nature and our desire to be in positive relationship with one another. In circles, no one is seen as, as dispensable and everyone is valued for their knowledge and their unique gift. Indigenous peoples from all around the world have used these types of gatherings for centuries to heal wounds and resolve community concerns. I believe the three people involved in this discussion benefited greatly from this RJ circle. The resolution that was offered by the actor was a heartfelt apology. This repaired the relationship and it showed respect for the victim. In agreement to offer a number of community service hours, the actor took responsibility for their actions. To take a training on racism and its impact on individuals, also showing some responsibility. And to have a follow-up conversation after the training with the victims, the people involved would repair the broken relationship and hopefully when they meet again in the community, could acknowledge one another in a positive manner. This work has affected my own experience by helping me understand and observe how people communicate and work through differences. Hopefully none of us are, decide, are defined by our worst life experiences. I know that within our UUA community, there's a belief in redemption and healing. RJ practices help people get there. In this situation, there was forgiveness a new opportunity for better understanding of experiences and a recognition of differences. I believe that by doing this work, I'm able to create a healthier world for our children, our community, and beyond by dismantling oppression within myself, those I work with, and our institutions. I continue to facilitate difficult conversations and I find that this work leaves an impact and change do occur one person at a time. There's an old Irish proverb that says, it's shelter, it isn't the shelter of each other.
that the people hear.
nice reflection is from Barb Warby, who sent us a video. She could not be with us in person this morning. Thank you to Barb for sharing her story. Hi, everyone. I'm Barb Fritz Warby. I joked recently that I am the parent who will be more upset with you if you show my kids the Disney movie Cinderella than if you talk with them about racism or sexuality or gender or feminism. Yes, I'm that parent. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, I look for other parents who are that parent when it comes to making friends for myself or scoping out potential friendships for my kids. I know that most parents, whether white or not white, are not comfortable with conversations about race and kids. I know it's part of our training in the dominant European descendant culture to keep conversations light and agreeable and talking about race or racism does not fall into that category. And I know it's absolutely crucial to provide regular inoculations to my children now while they still listen to me because they are growing up in a society which is polluted with the virus of white supremacy and homophobia and misogyny. So these inoculations that I'm talking about take several forms and one is via media. So I intentionally seek out shows and movies for my kids that center on main characters, not just supporting characters, but main characters who are people of color, queer, female, and who have body diversity. So I'm attracted to shows or movies that intentionally focus on celebrating cultures other than the white dominant culture and holidays other than Christian ones. And it's not perfect. So inevitably my kids do see media centering around whiteness or maleness or reinforcing stereotypes about women or girls being valued for their appearance. And when this happens, I point it out to them. <laughs> so for example, we recently watched The Princess Bride, which is a beloved movie from my childhood and maybe many of yours. Um, and as we're watching this, I'm cringing as the only person of color in the whole cast is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> and Buttercup's most prized qualities are her unmatched beauty and her enduring faithfulness to Wesley. And Wesley's character reinforces that the perfect man is smart and strong and athletic and handsome. And I frequently hit pause while we watched and pointed this out to my kids. They get it. <laughs> At the end, my nine-year-old quipped, well, at least they gave Buttercup her own horse. <laughs> it's the same as the books that we read. We try to provide a majority of books that center around underrepresented identities with concepts specifically talking about dismantling injustices or specifically naming that being anti-racist is more than being just kind. Um, the books spark conversations where I can teach them some of the main principles, such as why we have differences in skin color and hair texture and eye shape and what it means and what it doesn't mean. For example, that you can't tell anything about how anyone is on the inside just from their appearance, from their skin, eyes, or hair. Um, and although we should treat everyone equally, we live in a society that very much favors white skin and other features of whiteness. Um, and that a value in our home is to work against that. So here are a few of my favorite books I'd love to share with you. Um, a kid's book about racism, kids book about feminism. There's like a million in this series now, by the way. They're really good. Anti-Racist Baby. Little board book. It's awesome. Um, the Promised Land series. There are three in this series so far, and these center on queer romantic stories that are sort of modeled um, 
against the the Disney kind of fairy tale type. Um, so these are really good, and my kids love them. Um, and then finally, uh, Stamped for Kids. Um, and this is based off of the Ingram X Kendi book, Stamped for Adults. Um, and then there's Stamped for Teens and so forth. This is the kids one. It's, again, really good. Um, and of course, these are. this is also a really good series. So tons and tons of books out there. Really great resources. They'll provide a really good basis for discussion. Um, so another way that I inoculate my children from white supremacy is with environment and exposure. We live in Holliston, which is extremely white and heteronormative. So if I wanted to, I could make the choice to never interact with anyone outside of my race. And it's easier to connect with people who are the same as me, right? Whose family structures and life experiences are similar to my own, whose names do not require effort to learn or pronounce, who share the same interests as me on the surface level. Institutional racism makes it easy for me and even discourages me to stay, sorry, encourages me to stay within the color lines and never challenge myself to actually foster deep connections with people whom our country actively marginalizes. But I know that this is another way racism perpetuates itself. Although it would require less effort to lean into the sameness, I would be missing out and so would my kids. So I push myself outside of my comfort zone and look for opportunities to create authentic friendships with folks who look different or talk different than I do. It's a much richer human experience to have these relationships and it models to my kids that I don't just care about this stuff in the abstract. So lastly, I'm intentional about bringing up current events with my kids. For example, we discussed how the last time I was pulled over by the police, which they love to remind me of, by the way, that I wasn't scared for my life or theirs how the police officer was very polite to me and gave me a warning for speeding in the school zone. I've told them that that is our white privilege. We discuss complicated holidays such as Thanksgiving and I share with them that we are intentional in our family about where we donate our money and to what causes. They also know that one of the fears I have right now is that our friends who are Russian and those who aren't but speak with a European accent, Eastern European accent, will be targets of prejudice and hate. And there are limits for what I can do with my own kids though. You can imagine that after the sixth time I hit pause during the Princess Bride, they rolled their eyes and said, we get it. For anyone who is a parent, how many of you know that our kids don't like learning things from us per se, but need regular messaging from other trusted adults? So I need co-conspirators, other anti-racist adults in their world and mine, who like me are far from perfect in this work and like me, remain curious and committed to asking questions of one another, challenging one another and holding each other accountable. My goal, is, my goal is to build a community for my kids where it is normalized practice to point out injustices or examples of white supremacy when they see it. I don't want them to be the only people in their world who notice or care about this. And I want them to have the support and allyship of their peers because this is really hard work to put into practice. The Black Lives Matter and pride flags being flown in front of this church was one of the main reasons that I first walked through the doors in May 2017. That symbolized to me that this would be a place that would have the right intentions when it came to interacting with issues of race, power, and privilege. I 100% support adopting the eighth principle because white supremacy and institutionalized racism are cancers not unlike the one I just fought inside my own body. 
and speaking their names gives them less power. Speaking their names out loud and intending specifically to dismantle them is the work we need to be focusing on. It's not enough to affirm each person's dignity, as the first principle states, because each and every individual person in this UU community can affirm the dignity and worth of the people they come in contact with, and it will do absolutely nothing to dismantle and racism on the institutional level. As a parent who strives to be anti-racist, I would very much appreciate a faith community that would partner with me in this work. So this can be another place where my kids can learn to be anti-racist too. Thank you.
this young black woman held these white men's attention for over an hour, and they asked really thoughtful questions about things like job descriptions and recruiting. So these are just a few small things, but they're the kinds of opportunities I'm always looking for. And when I see them, I try to act on them, even if it feels like they won't make any real difference. And maybe they don't always, but sometimes they do. And maybe you could look for opportunities in your workplace too. There are many ways you can start to make some small waves, whatever the size of your business or your position or where you work. If you're in a leadership role, you might be able to mentor a person of color. If you select vendors, maybe you require companies to do business, have them submit a diversity policy with their bid. Um, if you're in a meeting, you can help amplify the voices of people of color if you find them not being heard. Years ago, I remember talking to an older black community organizer in New Orleans, and I was telling him how I only started opening my eyes to the racism that was all around me, and that I, I didn't notice it before, but now I looked at it and I wanted to make a difference, and I had no idea how I fit into this work, and what could I possibly do to contribute, and, and he just slowed down and nodded, and he said, don't worry, it'll find you, and he's right. Has and it continues to. So if you're wondering what you can do, just put that intention out there and open your eyes. It'll find you. Just be willing to pick it up when it does. It's the opening our eyes and the willingness to act that is so essential. When I started this testimonial, I said my faith called me to do something. I've been thinking a lot lately about the whys. Why do I have this impulse? Why is this work important to me? What in my theology draws me to it? What in my religion requires it? Why does it fill me spiritually? I'm really fascinated by these questions. Clearly, there was a racial justice-sized hole in me, and my heart knew to start filling it. But I'm very curious now. What caused that hole? Why and how does Unitarian Universalism compel me and provide my source to fill it? I'm pretty excited about exploring that. And this is one of the most exciting parts of the eighth principle to me the call to journey toward spiritual wholeness in this context. So I really don't need to change professions. There's plenty to do right where I am, from choosing stock photography to wrestling with big theological questions. It's all important work. And I'm so very grateful for this community that is inspiring me, encouraging me, and holding me accountable. And this is what building the world I dream about looks like to me. of our church? Do we notice when they show up? 
What does it mean for us, for our church, to be accountable? I know that we are asking these questions together and that we will continue asking these questions together. But these questions are the work of the whole community, not of committees, just as Paula Cole Jones said yesterday. And this is the work ahead of us, friends. This is the good and holy questions, the good and holy work. It's work that heals the world, and in turn, I believe it's work that will heal us. So as we journey together down this path, towards spiritual wholeness, toward multicultural beloved community, toward a world, toward a congregation with more liberation and love, may we do it hand in hand. May we hold the sacredness of this work together. And in doing so, may we be part of the healing that this world so desperately needs. May it be so, and amen.